Amen. Okay. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, so Holy Spirit, we just, uh, we need your word, and um, we submit to you, and um, thank you that you have illumined our path with the word of God, and we come hungry and thirsty. You say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. We're weak, you're strong, we're hungry and thirsty, you can fill us. Uh, We ask that you do that today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want you to get out your yellow, your yellow sheets there. Uh, you're going to want to follow along for this one. And um, a good leadership principle is to begin with the end in mind. So I'm just going to tell you what the end here is. The end. I believe what God is wanting to do in us here today is that we will leave here today engaged in a worshipful journey of increasing humility and phobedience. Okay? Let me repeat that. It's right there. First one on your yellow sheet. The result of our getting in the word of God today is going to be, I will see you. You will see yourself engaged by the Lord in a worshipful relationship of increasing humility and phobedience. What's my problem? My problem is that I, the English language is too weak and uh, we need two words to describe something. It's faith and obedience. Faith, obedience, together comes phobedience. It's not false obedience. Some of you guys thinking that I'm talking faux-obedience. No, I'm saying phobedience. That's the word I'm creating for this message so we can talk about obedience that's fueled by faith and not out of a need to be validated by God. Okay, so everyone say phobedience. Okay, just convenient if you get around Sarah Crass. She likes to abbreviate everything. I've tried to do it for her during this message, okay? Phobedience. Faith, obedience, okay? We will come out of here... With a, in a worshipful journey of increasing humility and faith obedience. To frame this journey, I'd like to invite Bree Curley from the river to come and read from a blog by a woman named, uh, uh, I've just forgotten her name, um, Masha. Her name is Melody Masha Pearson from Montreal. Listen to her blog entry from, I think it's from, let's see, let's look at our date. Not sure, that was when I printed it. The event happened in 07. I'm not sure when she wrote this blog entry. So, Bree, take it away. Dear family, I am sure this letter may be difficult to read. It is difficult to write. It is both painful and joyous. The reason I am writing is to thank you. Thank you is an expression which is used quite often and sometimes just in passing. This is a different kind of thank you. It is a thank you that defies English, French, or any language. How do you say thank you that means that because of you and your daughter, I'm alive to speak any words at all? I'm alive at 51 years to continue living. The importance and immense meaning of your gift in your daughter has given me truly cannot be expressed in words. I can try, though. I must try. Because I think you should know that this life was saved is a life of promise. My promise to you is that I will never waste one moment of it. I have two grown children of my own. I am a mother, a musician, and an artist, and a spiritual person. If you can imagine it, before the gift your daughter gave me, it was becoming very challenging to do anything in my life. Brushing my teeth required effort. Eating became difficult. Even with oxygen, I still had to be in a wheelchair if I wanted to go out. How do I share with you that you gave me back my life, that you gave me a better life? My children and my husband, thank you. My friends, thank you. 
And I think you should know that not one day goes by that I do not think of the generous spirit of yours and of the woman who enabled me to breathe again. There is a television commercial that says, when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. That is indeed true. To add to that, as a singer and songwriter, I thought my music was gone forever. As a mother, it became more difficult to see the pain in my children's faces. I want you to know something else. When I got the call that they had found a donor for me and that this person was a young woman, I thought of my own 22-year-old daughter who rode with me in the ambulance to the hospital for surgery. I cried during that whole ride to the hospital, not because I was scared or happy. I cried because I knew on that day, somewhere, a family lost a precious, beloved person in their life. My heart was with you and still is. On a more positive note, please know that this woman who gave me the gift of life is my hero. I literally owe my life to her and to you who had the bravery and strength to allow this procedure to take place in the midst of your grief. Please believe me when I tell you, to me, your daughter is an angel. She is on my shoulders. She is like a butterfly in my garden. She is the music inspired by Beethoven. She is a painting from the heart of Da Vinci. She is, a book, she is in the book written by the hand of God. She is a rainbow and a sunset. She is the most beautiful person I've ever known, and I carry her within me every day. Yes, please know that her spirit lives. I hold her in my heart, and she is with me, literally with every breath I take. May God bless you for giving me back my life, for giving me a new life with no more pain, a life where I don't have to fight for every breath I take. I love you without knowing you, and I am here as living proof that life goes on. I promise to take good care of her. I promise to honor her with everything I do, especially for others who have suffered like me. If you have any special requests at all, just let me know. With all my heart, I wish you peace. I wish you love, and above all, in faith, knowing that this beautiful woman has allowed me to live again. Your daughter, in life and spirit, is a miracle. I am her miracle. Thank you. With all the love from the deepest part of my heart, MP. Thanks, Bree. So, what is it that an organ recipient's blog post has to do with our discussion of Romans 3? Do you hear the gratitude in her heart? Do you hear the thankfulness, the humility? By what exactly was this woman named Masha, who blogs, a Jewish woman from Montreal, by what was she touched? And how is it that our response to this truth we're about to read in Romans 3 should be the same? Let's look together. Open with me, if you have your Bibles, to Romans 3, verse 9. We're going to start there. And um, the first few verses of Romans are more connected to the thoughts that we had a few weeks ago from Romans 2. So I'll let you read those. For this morning, we're just going to start at Romans 9. And remember, what is God doing in us? He's in getting us engaged in what will become a worshipful journey of increasing humility and obedience. Praise the Lord. Watch how he does it. Okay, Romans 3, 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Or confusingly, are we any worse? Because the Greek word just kind of means, are we any different? Right? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. Remember, Paul spent Romans 1 saying, hey, the world's a mess. He, sp he spends Romans 2 saying, and we're a mess too, us Jews. We're not any better. And this is his conclusion. We're all alike under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. 
All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Listen to the body parts that are going to be mentioned here. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So in this first part, Paul is taking the time to define our problem. And why is this important? Well, let's just think to Masha, our our organ recipient here. Imagine if the doctor is realizing that sounds like either her lung or maybe her heart or some other organ was failing. Now, if they sat down with Masha and said, Masha, you got mono. That's the problem. What service are they doing to Masha by perhaps out of their own fear, not telling her what the actual problem is? They're doing, doing her a terrible disservice. So, of course, how they tell her is key, but they will take the time to explain, Masha, this organ is failing. We need to get you on a donor list. And so in my mind, just so you know what I'm thinking about right now, I'm thinking about all the wonderful relationships I have with several unbelievers. And it is a fallacy for me to think that, uh, I, that love, sorry, let me say it a different way. The most loving thing I can do eventually in my relationship with them, in my discipleship of them, no matter at what point they become believers, but the most loving thing I can do is tell them what the real problem is. Because the solution that you give is always going to be based on the actual problem, right? If, you know, if philosophy just says, hey, we need more knowledge, right? We need correct knowledge about things, then things will be made right. Politics says, or different theories of politics say, hey, we just need to distribute wealth better. That's the main problem. But here the word of God is telling us that the real problem The actual problem is sin. And Paul does it in a great way. He says first, as you saw earlier, let's see, verse uh, 9, he says, we're all under sin. Everyone say under. Okay, this is a pretty big claim. It's not just that you and I sin from time to time, but it's that we're under sin's power. And of course, he's going to develop this. Sin, as you get into Romans 6, 7, and 8, sin is this very personal force. We're under sin. And then Paul takes a long list there. This grouping of scriptures was probably one that was put together. You notice the body parts, but these all come from the Psalms, except that second to last scripture comes from Isaiah. And he's building his case that all of us are under sin. And he's building this case using the Jewish scriptures saying, hey guys, it's, it's not just the Gentiles, not just all them that are under sin, but we're under sin too as, as, as Jews. That's huge. And then he used this very legal picture, okay? In verse 19, he says, Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, Why? So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God, right? The pictures of putting your hand over your mouth. And that would have been a picture that would have been way more accessible to people. You and I, we rarely get into the courts. 
I hope you're not in court that much, you know. The last time I was there was, oh gosh, probably 06. I uh, served on a jury and I, I totally enjoyed it. Actually, I was like, please pick me, please. I want to stay. I, um, I did enjoy my job teaching, but I was ready for a week break and uh, just love seeing the legal process. But the point is, we are not as familiar with the legal process where then these legal things would happen. They'd unfold in the public square. And so people would know that when they were done defending themselves, they'd put their hands over the mouth. That would be their sign that they were finished. Or it's why Jesus, in John's account of the trial of Jesus before uh, the high priest, why in John, Jesus gets struck on the mouth for being a little bit cheeky. They took it as him being a little bit wise acre to the high priest. They, they, you know, the priest was asking, you know, tell us what's up. And the high priest said, or Jesus said, well, hey, I've been here teaching the whole time. You know, haven't you heard this before? Boom. He got it from one of the officers. Because the idea was, be quiet. Don't, you can't defend yourself right now. Paul's point, sin is the main problem. And we have no defense. And man, verse 20, gosh, for the audience here, that would have been a, a jaw dropper. Therefore, no one will be t- declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Now, if we probably, just kind of taking the overall, uh, what information we have at our fingertips. If we ask the average Jew, say in Jerusalem in the first century, and we ask them, how are you saved? It would probably be kind of a mixture. And that mixture would be, I'm a Jew, which means I'm already a covenant person. I've got this special relationship with God, and I need to obey. And that's how I get saved. That's how I am in good relationship with God. And so Paul says this crazy thing. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Ooh. That's crazy. That's not how I see it. That's insane, actually. And so now when we get into verse 21, I just want to explain to you the import of what's about to happen at verse 21. There's a little movie that came out about 36 years ago, in May of 90, 1977, called Star Wars, okay? Can, can I bring you into this? I was, I was a small boy. Now, if you remember the end of that movie, Luke Skywalker, he's got R2-D2 there in the back. They're cruising along in their X-Wing, and uh, they're, you know, they're looking for that point of vulnerability in the Death Star, that exhaust port where if they drop the little laser cannon in, boom, the whole thing is going to blow. But who's on Luke's tail here at the end? And some TIE fighters. Yep, Darth Vader and a few of his guys. And you're kind of at this moment like, oh no, how is this thing going to work out? I'll tell you shortly, for those of you who forgot. <laughs> but if we're at this kind of moment, and here's why. As, and, and, and so we, what, what I need to take you into is, when Paul writes Romans, he's a seasoned missionary. He's argued these things. He's argued for the gospel Many times. And so he's very familiar with all the Jewish responses. And those responses included, you know, how is this thing going to work out? God started a relationship with humanity. We're blowing it all the time. In other words, God gave us the law. He gave us this Mosaic covenant, what we got on Sinai. He gave us how we should operate, but we've blown it. God's plan to rescue humanity was to have a special relationship with the Jews. But the very people who were supposed to be the problem solvers... 
are a part of the problem because they can't obey the law. Not to mention the fact that God's the God of everyone, so we got the Gentiles. How do they get into this thing too? In other words, it seems like, humanly speaking, it seems like God's got himself into quite a dilemma. How is it that humanity will be helped? How is it that Luke gets the cannon into the exhaust port? Who shows up? Han Solo, Chewbacca. We thought they were gone, but they show up. You know, we wrote them out of the movie a few, you know, a little while ago, right? We thought they were gone just doing his bounty hunter thing or whatever, that he was just in it for the money. But boom, Millennium Falcon comes in. Chewbacca, Han Solo, they fire on the TIE fighters. Darth Vader gets spinning into space. We'll see him in the next movie. But now, Luke can do this thing. Boom, down the exhaust port. See you later, Death Star. God's got a Death Star defying thing here. And this is, when we get into this, check this out, okay? Let's start with verse 21. By the way, what we're about to read, a little guy named Martin Luther, he was a Catholic priest. That didn't work out for him. A reformer, a monk. He calls this, these five verses that we're about to read, he called them the center, not only of this epistle, not only of this letter, but he calls these next few verses the center of the whole Bible. Is there an amen out there? (laughs) Come on, this is the good news. Joanne was reading it to us this morning, and she just crumbled under the power of God. Uh, She got broken up because the power of God came on her as we were reading this. Check this out. But now, but now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hold on, pause. Why am I reading this alone? This is when we all, we need to read this together. Can we start back at verse 21? Okay. Can we read this together? This is too good. Can we stand up? This is good. This is the center of the whole Bible. Let's stand up. Come on. This is too good. I see some of you nodding off once I left Star Wars. So this is what we'll do. Okay. This is too good. Let's read this together. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness or his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Thank you, God. Praise the Lord. That's good news. There we go. Amen. Have a seat. This is good. So righteousness from God comes onto this scene. And basically, these few verses are going to unpack. What is that righteousness like? Let's find out. Well, the first thing is, we see in verse 21, that this, although it's new, it's not like God hadn't been hinting at it already. In other words, Paul says the law, 
This righteousness, meaning our right standing with God, it actually comes from an Arabic word, uh, meaning straightness is its origin. But our right standing before God, our, our ability to be declared righteous in the court of God, it, um, it's, been, it's new because it's not coming from your obedience to the law, but the law and the prophets have been testifying to it the whole time. And there's a lot of proof texts that Paul does use, but the one he's probably referring to right now is the very psalm that we looked at this morning when you walked in the door, Psalm 143. And here's how I know. Listen to this, Psalm 143. And this is unusual. David cries out in Psalm 143. It's unusual because in, in many times in David's psalms, he uses language that's a little bit strange for us, and he asserts his own righteousness. He says, God, I've been good. I've been doing the right thing. Bless me because I've been good. A lot of David's psalms are like that. But this is one of the unusual ones where David says, Oh God, have mercy on me. And listen to what he says. He says, Oh Lord, hear my prayer. Psalm 143 verse 1. Listen to my cry for mercy in your faithfulness and in your righteousness come to my relief. In other words, Paul knows, excuse me, David knows that he's guilty. He knows that he's blown it. And the only recourse he has is not his own righteousness, but God's righteousness. Verse 2, please God, do not bring your servant into judgment for no one living is righteous before you. Paul just said that in Romans 3.20. No one living is righteous before you, okay? So this, I mean, as well as Isaiah 53, maybe some of you know Isaiah 53. There's other hints that Paul is saying, hey, the law and the prophets have testified to the fact that our righteousness will never make it. Our obedience to the law will never make it. But there's got to be something otherworldly that comes, and it's the righteousness of God. This righteousness, verse 22. Let's learn all about this righteousness. Let's unpack it. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So how does this righteousness work? It works by faith. What's the vehicle? The vehicle for receiving this righteousness? It's faith in Jesus Christ. There's no difference, verse 23 now, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think of the quote from St. Irenaeus that I shared yesterday with our college crew. Said it many times here. It's his most famous quote. What does St. Irenaeus say? He was a bishop. He was a leader of the people of God in what is now Lyon, France. Kind of the next generation after the apostles. And he says, the glory of God is man fully alive. When you and me are fully alive, we show the glory of God. But we just look around the earth and we see, man, are we imaging God really well these days? Are men and women on the earth reflecting God's glory? Gosh, not so well. We were made to carry the glory of God, but yet all of us have sinned and we fall short of that glory. We don't carry that glory that well. We've disfigured his image. We fall short of it. But check this out, verse 24. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now Paul's pulling out some, there's words that mean a lot to his listeners here. Okay, let them mean that much and more to us today. His righteousness. We're talking about the righteousness of God. So verse 24, we're justified freely by His grace. What does it cost us? His righteousness costs us nothing. It's freely by His grace, unmerited favor, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. What does redemption mean? Again, we've been in the church so long, we get these religious words, we don't always understand their import, their significance. Redemption. Okay, the analogy that's being used The picture that readers would get right there is the slave market. All right? 
And you and I, Jesus in his mercy, by redeeming us, he takes us out of the slave market of sin. Apart from Christ, we can be trafficked. We can be trafficked in sin. We're allowed. The enemy has full access to us apart from the redemption of Christ. But what Jesus does, he says, I'm paying. I'm taking you out of that slave market. You belong to me now. That's the picture. Redemption is a slave market word there. The other image that it would bring to mind for all the Jews would be the exodus, right? When was the last time the people of Israel were in slavery and had to get redeemed? It was the exodus. God purchased them by the blood of lambs. In that case, angels of death passed over the houses that had the blood on the doorposts there, and they were redeemed. Okay? So again, Paul's just using different words to help give us some pictures of what actually has gone on. This is key. It's foundational. It's the gospel. It's the good news. What else? So it costs us nothing, but what did it cost Jesus? Let's see. Let's look at verse 25. I'm going to start again at 24. We are all justified freely, costs us nothing, by His grace, His unmerited favor, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption. Jesus gets us off the slave market, rescues us. Verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Now Paul shifts gears and starts to use other language or other pictures for us. Sacrifice of atonement. If you have ESV, yours says propitiation. Okay, if you have RSV, it says expiation, which is a bad, bad translation. (laughs) Don't feel bad, but it's just expiation only has to do with just, um, expiation just has to do with uh, paying for the sin, it's just kind of the human side of things, but propitiation has to do with the divine response to sin. And what is God's response to sin always? Well, yeah, now in Christ it's mercy, but apart from Jesus, his, the divine response to sin will always be, what we preached on a little while ago, it's wrath, right? It's just, yeah, it's his character. He doesn't like sin. And so propitiation, Jesus is the propitiation. The wrath of God comes on Jesus. Let's talk about the sacrifice of atonement a little bit. Paul is using language that is cultic, not meaning part of a cult, but meaning having to do with worship or the temple, right? And again, these readers, they have in their mind Leviticus 16, where on the day of atonement, this mercy seat, right? Uh, The ark, ark of the covenant. God sets up worship, creates the ark of the covenant, put in the Ten Commandments in there, put in some manna, put in the, uh, the uh, staff of Moses that budded, you know, other things that remind the Jews of what God's done. And uh, this seat has a cover, and it's got the angels that are doing this thing, right? Whew, angels. They got their wings like this. And right on top of there on the wings, that's where God would come and show up and talk to the people, talk to the priest. And on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, that would be what the priest would sprinkle blood on. Day of Atonement, Day of at one meant, Day of us getting back with God, being reconciled to God. And Paul is saying, Jesus is. God presented Jesus as the sacrifice of atonement. Jesus was presented as the mercy seat. He is both the place of propitiation and he is the event of propitiation. It's really amazing that God did this for us. Can anyone say really amazing? Thank you. Someone be here. This is really amazing and it's powerful. Thank you, Lord. So, Paul using words to explain this righteousness. Uses the word redemption. 
uses the word sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood, right? So faith in the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. And now here we get back to our little Star Wars analogy. He did this to demonstrate his justice. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Again, Paul has to have in mind the millions of arguments he's had with the Jews about, you know, the problem with this whole thing, the whole Jesus thing, like the whole gospel thing you're talking about, Paul, is what does God do with unpunished sin? That's not his character. Or the other argument that probably comes all the time is, how can you tell me that an accursed way to die, to die on a tree, results in blessing? Or another common argument would be, how can God accept sinners? If we just, as you guys just attested to me, that God's response to sin is wrath. And Paul answers all these arguments saying, listen, guys, this is the deal. Middle verse 25 into 26. He did this. In other words, he presented Jesus as the mercy seat, as the sacrifice of atonement. He did it to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, right, in God's mercy, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Okay? God's requirement for justice is met. And at the same time, he's justifying people like you and me, people who sin. And he's justifying us by his grace. As my Southern Baptist preacher said in Texas, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. Thank you, Barry Kemp from Waco, Texas in the 1990s. Thank you, Lord. All right, what's the result? As we're moving towards communion today, what's the result? What's the response? Remember? My desire would be, as we engage in this text, that you would come out with a worshipful journey, engage in a worshipful journey of increasing humility and obedience. Let's look at how this works, starting in verse 27. Paul says, Where then is boasting? Talking about humility. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of Faith, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from uh, observing the law. Let's pause right there. As one man named Philip said, the whole deal is now believing instead of achieving. And our self-centered attempts at goodness are actually rebellion towards the one who is good. Our self-centered attempts at goodness are actually rebellion towards the one who is good. Do you ever notice, I mean, here's the deal. I was just going to say unbelievers, but actually it's all of us. You ever notice in your conversation how much you're defending yourself all the time? If we just took a transcript, it'd be great. Actually, I'd love to take at the end of today, I'd love to take a transcript of all the things that I've said to anyone. And what you'll find in that transcript is a lot of self-justifying, right? Oh, I did this. Oh, you know, whether to my wife, to you guys in the church. Uh, a lot of our speech is motivated by this, oh, oh. I got to defend myself. I was good. I did the right thing. La, 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 you know? It's a bunch of sin. <laughs> I'm thinking about unbelieving friends. And when I mention things like, hey, I'd really love it if you came to church on Easter, you know? And inevitably, eventually in the paragraph that comes out after is something about how they're doing good or they're being good. 
it's really amazing how deep and how ingrained our holding on to our own goodness is. And man, God needs to break us of that habit. I need it. I need it afresh. We're not justified by observing the law, but by faith in what God has done for us, by faith in God's righteousness. See, it's so hard for people, for men and women, because it's all about us. We're self-centered. It's what we do. But this whole gospel is a major reworking, or instead it's, God, your righteousness. It's what rescues me. And now Paul begins to address, and we'll start to look at it later. We look at Romans 4, but he begins to address another objection that naturally comes up. What's the objection? Hey, if Jesus makes me righteous, I can do whatever the heck I want, right? License. Praise the Lord. I'm justified. Let me go and do whatever. How does he tackle that one? Let's look at these last few verses. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles? This is verse 29. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God. Ooh. Jewish ears perk up. There is only one God. What is that? Come on. We got, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the Shema, right? It's, so there's one God. So he, he's kind of calling that to mind. There's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by that same faith. Sorry, I kind of jumped ahead with his main thing there is, you know, God, he's just and he's going to, he's going to, he can justify everybody. And now we get to the faux obedience part. Listen to this. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? In other words, by this faith, do we just get license to do whatever the heck we want? He says, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. We uphold the law, and he'll, again, he'll totally unpack it in 6, 7, and 8. It'll be by the Spirit that we uphold the law. But, it's, but we are called into a faux obedience, that is, an obedience that is out of faith and not by needing to validate ourselves or prove our own goodness. And that's the game changer, right? Isn't it wonderful? We are free from trying to validate ourselves or earn God's love. We have so received his love that then our only response is for obedience. And obedience marked by faith. I believe in God. I believe in God's righteousness. So guess what? Now I obey because I'm free to obey. That's good news. That's the gospel. Praise the Lord. Let's prepare our hearts to serve communion, to take communion. Those of you who are serving communion would come forward. I just want to invite us to think through a few things here. Did you hear the tone of Masha's blog? Was she a thankful woman for new life? Someone died, she got an organ, and she had new life. And I don't know if you heard it in there, but she said in her blog, she said, um, I, basically she said something like, um, I will honor you every day. You know, I'll honor the gift that was given to me every day. So as we take communion, I just want to think about three things. One is some of us just need to Respond in thanks again, right? That's that worshipful journey part. All we can say like Thomas is, my Lord and my God, right? You're good. The second thing is, allow God to speak to you about where you do rely on your own goodness too much. And I want to say something paradoxically. Paradoxically, it's often in our areas of sin that we're actually relying on our own goodness. I just want to say that one more time. Paradoxically, 
the places where we kind of sin and repeat sin, those are often places where we're deceived because we're kind of relying on our own goodness. I'm just going to let that sit. Maybe we'll unpack it next week. But just ask the Lord, hey God, is there a place where I'm relying really on my own goodness, not really trusting in uh, you and your righteousness to get me out? And lastly, just ask God, God, is there a place where you're inviting me into a fresh step of obedience? Is there a place where I know, God, you're asking me to obey and you're inviting me to do it by faith, knowing that I'm loved by God? Just ask that as we take communion today. Okay, why don't you all stand up?